Recorded live. Whoa, I missed, I, I must have missed the button, I'm sorry. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, February 27th, 2015. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel. And thank you for listening. I only pray tonight there are some interesting points and all of the minute details which I, I, um, I'm going to offer. Uh, These minute details, I believe, are necessary. What we, our Christian identity profession is, um, so far off the mainstream academic path that we have to, I believe, dot all our I's and cross all our T's. We have to cover all the bases we can to show that we we have the facts in a study about the scripture. Even when those facts in study are not directly related to our Christian identity message, we still have to um, produce and record the scholarship that proves that we've studied our scripture and know what we're talking about. Tonight's program is the first part in our presentation of Paul's second epistle to the Corinthians. It's subtitled The Affliction of the Anointed. That that um subtitle simply grabbed me. That there's other things to talk about here, but that's one of them. According to the 27th edition of the Nestle Land Novum Testamentum Grece. Paul's second epistle to the Corinthians is attested to in two ancient great uncle manuscripts dating to the 4th century, four manuscripts dating to the 5th century, and seven dating to the 6th century, which survive, right? I'm sure there were thousands of these manuscripts at one time. It is also attested to in the Chester Beatty papyrus labeled P46, which actually preserves most of Paul's epistles, great portions of most of them, and is esteemed by epigraphers and archaeologists to date to about 200 AD. I know that some, um, some Christian separatist scholars dated a lot earlier than that, but they really don't have any solid evidence to do so. The 28th edition of the Novum Testament in Greke adds to the list the more recently discovered papyrus, P99, which is dated to around 400 AD, and in which are preserved considerable fragments of chapters from throughout the epistle as well as two other papyri dating from the um, 5th and 6th centuries, which contain much of chapters 7, 8, and 11. Therefore, the contents of the epistle are well attested from ancient sources, from archaeological sources, all the way back to 200 A.D. After spending 
approximately three years in Ephesus. Acts chapter 19. Paul of Tarsus had departed from the city in 56 AD. We can date his departure by reckoning backwards from the time of his detention in Caesarea, which is given by Luke in the final chapters of the books of Acts, in relation to the ten years of office of the Roman procurators, Festus and Felix, which are known from secular history, and even from Flavius Josephus. For this, the primary witness is Luke's writing in Acts chapter 24, in verses 26 and 27, where he states of the Roman procurator Antonius Felix that he had hoped also that money should have been given him by Paul, that he might set him loose. Wherefore he sent for him more frequently and communed with him. But after two years, Porcius Festus came into Felix's room or office, and Felix, willing to show the Jews a pleasure or a favor, left Paul bound. While historians are divided over whether it was 58 or 59 AD when Festus came into office in Judea, the one-year difference in chronology is close enough for us. We cannot be absolutely certain, but for various historical reasons, we are confident that the year was 59. And from 59, we can count back through the book of Acts to this point in Paul's ministry and set the date at 56 A.D. Departing from Ephesus. Paul went through the Troad and on to Macedonia. As he had outlined in his plan stated in the first letter to the Corinthians in chapter 16. And he says from verse 5, Now I will come unto you when I shall pass through Macedonia. For I do pass through Macedonia. And it may be that while I abide, yeah, and winter with you, that you may bring me on my journey whithersoever I go. For I will not see you now, by the way, but I trust to tarry a while with you, if the Lord permits. But I will tarry at Ephesus until the Pentecost. So Paul in verse 7 where it says, For I will not see you now, by the way, we will see in 2 Corinthians that he had plans and changed them. But in 2 Corinthians he did initially plan on seeing the Corinthians first after leaving Ephesus. So this one line in 1 Corinthians helps substantiate that um, 2 Corinthians must also have been written by Paul of Tarsus. And, and we will get to that. There's much internal evidence that these two letters are um, very close in time to each other. One followed the other. And that, of course, Paul of Tarsus had to write them both. Paul sent Timothy and Erastus out from Ephesus to Macedonia ahead of him 
Acts chapter 19, verse 22. However, reading the account in the book of Acts, and seeing that after the trouble with the silversmiths, that Paul had left Ephesus unexpectedly, it is unclear as to whether he had actually managed to stay there until after Pentecost, which he had planned. We then read in the opening of Acts chapter 20, from verse 1, and after the uproar ceased, Paul called unto him the disciples and embraced them, and departed for to go into Macedonia. And when he had gone over those parts, and had given them much exhortation, he came into Greece. We only learn from Paul's later address to the elders of the Ephesians, given in the end of Acts chapter 20, as it is recorded in verse 31, that Paul had been in Ephesus three years before departing. We know from this epistle, I'm sorry, we know from his epistle to Titus, that leaving Ephesus, Paul had stopped in the Troad en route to Macedonia and had hoped to find Titus there. That is the context of the epistle to Titus, and we can see it from where he had explained in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, from verse 12. Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, and a door was opened unto me of the Lord, I had no rest in my spirit, because I found not my brother Titus. But taking my leave of them, I went from there into Macedonia. In the Troad, Paul must have found where to reach Titus, since he wrote his epistle to Titus some short time later. And he says in Titus chapter 3, from verse 12, When I shall send Artemis unto thee, or Tychicus, be diligent to come unto me in Nicopolis, for I have determined there to winter. Here we also learn that even though before leaving Ephesus, Paul had planned on wintering in Corinth, as he says in 1 Corinthians 16.6, that after he left Ephesus and before writing to Titus, he decided instead to winter in Nicopolis, Titus 3.12. The reasons for Paul's changing his mind and delaying his visit to the Corinthians are explained by Paul here in the first two chapters of his second epistle, especially in chapter 2. In the meantime, Paul must have received an answer to his first epistle to the Corinthians, which in some ways had upset him, and he will express that in chapter 2 of this epistle. Their reply upset him in some ways because he, evidently, had also grieved the Corinthians with his first epistle. The primary reason for that grief, as we shall see, was Paul's insistence that the Corinthians expel a certain fornicator from their assembly. We shall discuss these things in greater detail when we encounter them here later in our presentation of this epistle.
With this understanding, however, it is evident as to why Paul first planned on wintering in Corinth and later decided to winter in Nicopolis instead. We can confidently assert that this epistle was written as Paul's response to the Corinthians' reply to his first epistle. And of course, we do not have preserved to us that reply. We can only imagine some of the things that they said from Paul's response. Many commentaries claim that Paul spent this winter in Nicopolis in Macedonia. This claim is even found in some of the manuscripts from as early as the 6th century and later in the form of a subscript to the epistle to Titus. There was evidently a city named Nicopolis which was in Thrace near to Macedonia but even that wasn't in Macedonia. However, if Paul wintered there and we really examine the chronology of his travels, which we have, he could never have traveled to Greece after the end of the winter, spent three months in Greece, as Luke says that he did, in the opening verses of Acts chapter 20, and then have made it back through Macedonia to the Troad and on to Miletus and then on to Palestine to arrive in Jerusalem before the Pentecost as it is recorded that he was resolved to do in Acts chapter 20 verse 16. The entire space from the end of winter which is traditionally the very end of February to the Pentecost would be less than five months in the year 57 AD. If Paul stayed the winter in Nicopolis in Macedonia and then spent three months in Greece, as Luke says, all this would have been impossible to do since there were not even three full months between the end of winter and the date of Pentecost. Rather, there were a few days short of three months because Pentecost in 57 AD was in the last week of May. 50 days after Passover, which was in the first week of April. We must bear in mind that Luke distinguished Greek, Greece from Macedonia in Acts chapter 20 verses 1 through 3. There was another Nicopolis, a city founded by Augustus in 31 BC, which was in the mainland area of Greece, which was a part of the Roman province of Achaia in the region of the ancient kingdom of Epirus. Spending three months in Greece, two of those months, January and February, must have been during the winter in Nicopolis in Epirus, in Greece, not some Nicopolis in Macedonia. In that manner, understanding that, then the statements by Luke in Acts chapter 20 verses 2 and 3 and by Paul in Titus 3.12 are both seen to be accurate and can easily be reconciled with the timing of Paul's travels. This would afford Paul the traditional two months for winter and the month to visit Corinth 
completing the statement by Luke that Paul spent three months in Greece in Acts chapter 20, verses 2 and 3, there would then be approximately eight weeks left after the end of March for Paul to go back again through Macedonia spend a week in the Troad where the other apostles had also collected which we see in Acts chapter 20 verses 4 and s- four through 6 and then to sail by Miletus to once again see the elders of the assemblies of Asia which we see recorded towards the end of Acts chapter 20 and then to make it to Jerusalem by sea in time for the Pentecost near the end of May. The Passover that year being in early April, Paul had from the end of March until nearly the end of May for this journey to Jerusalem from Corinth. Therefore, from Nicopolis during the winter and just before Paul had gone on to visit Corinth in March of 57 AD, he had written this second epistle to the Corinthians. While he was in Nicopolis, he wrote the second epistle to the Corinthians. This can be established by comparing Paul's request in the epistle to Titus, where he asked Titus to meet him in Nicopolis, to 2 Corinthians chapter 7 where Paul describes the coming of Titus as he had requested in the epistle to Titus. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8 we see that Titus went ahead of Paul into Corinth in order to deliver this second epistle. Then in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 Paul merely speaks of Titus as if he is already in Corinth and the Corinthians are reading his words concerning him. So, with a little study, the minute details of Paul's ministry and the timing of his writing these epistles can, to a great extent, be pieced together. With that, we will commence with 2 Corinthians, with verse 1, chapter 1, of course. Paul, ambassador of Yahshua Christ, by the will of Yahweh, and Timotheus, or Timothy, the brother, so we see Timothy is with Paul, to the assembly of Yahweh, which is in Corinth, with all of the saints who are in the whole of Achaia. Favor and peace to you from Yahweh our Father and Prince Yahshua Christ. As we have already stated, Timothy was with Paul in Ephesus, and Paul had sent him along with Erastus to go ahead of him to Macedonia, which is recorded in Acts chapter 19 in verse 22. 
Paul may also have expected Timothy and Erastus to precede him into Greece to Corinth as well as Macedonia. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 verse 10 that if perhaps Paul thought it might happen, if perhaps Timothy should come, you see that he may be without fear before you. For he performs the work of the prince, even as I. But Timothy could not have gone ahead to Corinth. And rather, he must have stayed in Macedonia until he was reunited with Paul. Because here we see that Timothy is with Paul when this second epistle to the Corinthians is being written, some short time before Paul goes to Corinth. Titus who is not mentioned at all in Acts chapters 19 or 20, is later sent by Luke to deliver this epistle to the Corinthians. Timothy, being with Paul in the Troad, as Luke describes it in Acts chapter 20, must have stayed with Paul at this time. Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians was addressed to the Corinthians, of course, and also to all those calling themselves by the name of our Prince Yahshua Christ in each place, theirs and ours, where perhaps each may have been rendered better as every, in every place, theirs and ours. Here we may determine what he had meant by that, where he addresses his second epistle not only to the Corinthians, but to all of the saints who are in the whole of Akahia. In the first century, the term Akahia referred to the Roman province, which included the Peloponnesus and parts of the southern mainland of Greece. Separate provinces were Epirus, which is just north of the western part of Greece, of Akahia, I should say, and Macedonia. Luke had evidently considered Epirus and Akahia together to be Greece, as in Acts chapter 20, he distinguished that from the Roman province of Macedonia, which was also mostly Greek. It is clear elsewhere that Paul had expected his epistles to be shared among the assemblies, not only to whom he had written, but also among the assemblies of neighboring places. For instance, in his epistle to the Colossians, Paul wrote in its closing verses, and when this epistle is read among you, cause that it be read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. In other words, Paul had also written a now he had written a now lost epistle to the Laodiceans, and he expected the Colossians and the Laodiceans to share with one another the epistles that he had written to each of them. The two cities were near one another in southwest Anatolia. Likewise here, in Greece, Paul must have expected this epistle to be shared with the other unnamed Christian assemblies throughout this region of Greece. 
verse 3. Blessed is Yahweh, even the father of our prince, Yahshua Christ. The father of compassions. Yahweh is also of all encouragement. And we're going to um, hesitate for a few moments on this word encouragement. There's a, um, a Greek noun here in this first chapter of 2 Corinthians. Paraclesis. Strong's number 3874. We hear a lot in mainstream Judeo-Christian churches about the, the paraclete, which they use as a synonym for the Holy Spirit. This word paraclesis appears six times here in verses 3 through 7. And we have translated it in the Christian New Testament as encouragement each time. There's a corresponding verb, parakaleo, Strong's number 3870, which appears three times in this first chapter in verse 4 and once in verse 6 and which here, on every occasion, is translated as encourage. According to the Liddell and Scott Greek-English lexicon, the noun, paraclesis, is a calling to one's aid, a summons, a calling upon, an appealing, an exhortation, an address, or encouragement. And the verb, paracaleo, is to call to one, to call to aid, to call in, to send for, to summon, to invite, to exhort, to cheer, to encourage, to comfort, or to console. And here, comfort would have been the best alternative to encouragement. The paraclete is a different noun that describes the comforter, the person doing the comforting. Of course, in this Christian sense, that would be the Holy Spirit, which is Yahshua Christ, John chapter 14. These words occur quite frequently in Paul's writings. The noun, paraclesis, appears 17 times, and the verb, paracalio, 54 times, in other places in Paul's letters, outside of this chapter. Part of the purpose of the Gospel, and this is throughout the Old Testament, especially Isaiah, I should say throughout the Old Testament prophets, and especially Isaiah, part of the purpose of the Gospel was to comfort, to encourage, to comfort the children of Israel. From Isaiah chapter 35, and we will read from Brentman's Septuagint, comfort one another, ye faint-hearted. Be strong, fear not, behold, our God renders judgment, and he will render it, he will come and save us. So we see salvation and this encouragement, because where it says comfort there in the Greek, it's the same word, parakaleo. We see salvation and that comfort 
prophesied for the children of the children of Israel, and the two ideas are intertwined. And then the next passage says, Then shall the eyes of the blind be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall hear. That's the gospel. Then shall the shall the lame man leap as a heart, and the tongue of the stammerer shall speak plainly. For water has burst forth in a desert, and a channel of water in a thirsty land, those streams of living water. Likewise, from Isaiah chapter 40, the same word, in Greek, Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith God. Speak ye priests to the heart of Jerusalem. Comfort her, for her humiliation is accomplished. Her sin is put away. For she has received of the Lord's hand double the amount of her sins, the punishment of Israel for their apostasy. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make straight the paths of our God. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be brought low, and all the crooked ways shall become straight, and the rough places plains. Both of these passages that have to do with comfort and encouragement, both of these passages appeals to comfort the put away, punished children of Israel were later used in the gospel to describe the purpose of the Christ. It is this comfort to which Paul refers in this epistle and throughout his epistles. This is summarized again in Isaiah chapter 41 where the word of Yahweh says and I will give dominion to Zion and will comfort Jerusalem by the way. It is expressed also in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 49 from verse 8. Thus saith Yahweh, and we're going to see that Paul quotes this very passage later in this epistle. Thus saith Yahweh, in an acceptable time have I heard thee, and in a day of salvation I have succored thee, and I have formed thee, and given thee for a covenant of the nations to establish the earth, and to cause to inherit the, des the desert heritages, saying to them that are in bonds, Go forth, and bidding them that are in darkness, Show themselves. They shall be fed in all the ways, and in all the paths shall be their pasture, they shall not hunger, neither shall they thirst, neither shall the heat nor the sun smite them. But he that has mercy on them shall comfort them. Same word, parakaleo.
and by the fountains of water shall he lead them. And I will make every mountain a way and every path a pasture to them. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul cites this same passage in reference to the Corinthians. After exhorting them to be reconciled to God at the end of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. The comfort of the cast off and put away children of Israel is a frequent theme in these later chapters of Isaiah. And Paul of Tarsus is teaching the fulfillment of that comfort, or as we have here, of that encouragement in Christ. Paul is teaching the fulfillment of the comfort to the children of Israel in Christ in the Gospel message. Verse 4. He is encouraging us upon every one of our afflictions for us to be able to encourage those in every affliction through the encouragement with which we ourselves are encouraged by Yahweh. Isaiah chapter 54 speaks of the affliction of Israel and prophecies the coming comfort. Oh, thou afflicted. From, from verse 11. Oh, thou afflicted, tossed with tempest, and not comforted the children of Israel as they're put away. Behold, I will lay stones with fair colors, and lay thy foundations with sapphires. And I will make of thy windows of agates, and thy gates of carbuncles. Sounds like the city of God in Revelation chapter 21 and 22. And thy gates of carbuncles, and all thy borders of pleasant stones, and all thy children shall be taught of Yahweh, and great shall be the peace of thy children. In their being put away, they were not comforted, yet they were promised this reconciliation. It was... In this very teaching of the children of Israel prophesied in Isaiah, it was that in which Paul was engaged. Teaching the Corinthians, for instance, whom and the rest of those nations whom he had whom he had had his mission to and whom he had identified in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 as Israel according to the flesh, just as Isaiah had prophesied. Verse 5. 
because just as the sufferings of the anointed are abundant to us, in that manner, through the anointed, our encouragement also is abundant. The encouragement comes, and we'll see Paul claim that anointing, that anointing for himself and his readers later in this chapter. He's not talking about the sufferings of Christ alone. While it is true that Yahshua Christ was to suffer on behalf of the children of Israel, and Paul taught that as well, here he is referring to the same sufferings which Christians must also suffer. And the context, which we will see when we get to those verses, the context supplied by verses 6 and 7 proves the interpretation of the Greek here. So we translate the Greek word Christos as anointed rather than Christ, believing that the singular noun refers to the group as well, not only to the Christ, to whom it usually refers, but often it refers to the entire body of Christ, which is Yahshua Christ as the head and includes his people Israel. This usage is apparent many times in Paul's epistles. The affliction which Paul refers to here is that of the children of Israel collectively and is referred to by Paul again in chapter 4 of this epistle. And there the King James Version has him saying, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, works for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Ostensibly, this affliction and the, the, the context of chapter 4 again proves our interpretation here, that it applies to the children of Israel collectively, not only to Christ personally. And chapter 4 talks about our, collectively, our light affliction. And that's what Paul's talking about here, the sufferings of the anointed, of the entire group, as well as... Christ. Ostensibly, this affliction is due to the seven times of the punishment which the children of Israel were prophesied to be subject to because of their disobedience in the Old Testament kingdom. Even those turned to Christ would still suffer to some degree for this original apostasy. As the word of Yahweh says in Amos 3.2, You only have I known of all the families of the earth, therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. This punishment is ongoing until the time when the children of Israel finally have victory in Christ as described in the Revelation and the fall of Mystery Babylon. And that, that is our encouragement. Now, verse 6, 
whether we are afflicted on behalf of your encouragement and preservation, or if we are encouraged on behalf of your encouragement, which is being produced in the endurance of the same sufferings by which we are also affected, so that that affliction, those sufferings in verse 5, are the sufferings of the anointed, the people of God collectively, and the context of verse 6 and 7 prove that. Or if we are encouraged on behalf of your encouragement, which is being produced in the encouragement of the same sufferings by which we are also affected, then our hope for you is steadfast, knowing that just as you are partners of the sufferings, if you're one of those put-off children of Israel, in that manner also of the encouragement that comfort prophesied for the children of Israel in Isaiah many times. There are some variant readings here among the manuscripts. The um, the majority text and the Codex Claromontanus have verse 6 to read. Now whether we are afflicted on behalf of your encouragement and preservation, being produced in the endurance of the same sufferings by which we are also affected, or if we are encouraged on behalf of your encouragement and preservation, well, which is... um looks like a confusion of words but that would probably more closely be the reading in the King James Version Paul is about to mention the afflictions which he and the other apostles had in the task of spreading the gospel however he is also referring to the affliction of the Corinthian Christians and we've seen that when we presented 1 Corinthians chapter 7 here some weeks ago where Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 26, after um, offering the opinion that it might be better that a man remain a virgin, referred to the present violence, as the Christianian New Testament has it. I think that um, the King James Version only has present necessity or something like that it's it's not a good reflection of what was going on it should be the present violence in 1 Corinthians 7:26 and Paul was referring to persecutions of Christians which the Corinthian Christians as well as the apostles were suffering in the days of Claudius Caesar and in the days of Nero, who succeeded him. And, and this, um, this period of history in which Paul writes these epistles, the period of history in, when he's in Ephesus, it is the period when um, Claudius Caesar dies and Nero comes into office. I think that was 54 or 55 A.D., I'm not absolutely sure, but it was right around that time. 
For we do not wish you to be ignorant brethren concerning our affliction which happened to us in Asia. Those words to us actually only exist in a majority text. Because we were exceedingly oppressed beyond ability consequently for us to despair even of living. And here Paul is almost certainly referring to the troubles with the silversmiths, which had caused him to leave Ephesus sooner than he had expected. Ephesus was no mean city. Strabo called it the largest emporium in Asia, this side of the Taurus, in the 14th book. of his geography. The Taurus is referring to the mountains of central Anatolia. Strabo's statement meant that Ephesus was the largest merchant city in Asia Minor. In 27 BC, Augustus Caesar made the city the capital of the Roman province of Asia, favoring Ephesus over the city of Pergamon, which had long been the capital of the Italic Kingdom in Asia Minor that Rome had succeeded for political control of the area. Of the trouble with the silversmiths, in the records of this event, in Acts 19.23, Luke had said that there arose no small stir about that way referring to the new Christian creed called the way at this time. Luke also said that the whole city was filled with confusion. The desperation <coughs> reflected by Paul's own description here, however, certainly shows that Luke's words were not at all overstated, but were rather quite modest. Paul was prepared to enter into the stadium and face the silversmiths. And then, in Acts 19, verse 31, we read, And certain of the chief of Asia, which were his friends, sent unto him, desiring him that he would not adventure himself into the theater. Where the King James Version has chief of Asia, referring to men, it's plural in the Greek. It is a reference to the Asiarchs, the rulers of the people of Asia Minor, the rulers of the people of the province who were appointed by the Romans. Now, of course, every Roman province had a proconsul or a procurator who was the head of the Roman administration. And that would be the equivalent to, say, Pontius Pilate. But Roman provinces also had political leaders who served more or less at the leisure of Caesar. And they were leaders, they were the rulers over the people at the local level. And in Judea, the equivalent was Herod. So here we have the Asiarchs who are rather powerful men in Asia Minor, and they're friends of Paul.
Then, in verse 35 of Acts 19, we see that the announcement of the town clerk, we'll call him the town clerk. He's actually, the Greek word is simply scribe. In response to the charges of the silversmiths, was also favorable to the party of Paul, since the charges of the silversmiths were dismissed, and evidently none of the Christians were harmed. This caused Paul to depart from the city, evidently along with many of his Christian companions. However, the hand of Yahweh is clearly evident because Paul was favored by the local rulers in spite of the fact that not only the pagan religious beliefs, but also the economic life of the city, which depended on the Temple of Diana, or Artemis in Greek, the economic life of the city had been threatened by the message of the gospel. And in spite of that, the rulers of the city were, were, were on Paul's side. They were in Paul's corner, so to speak. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 32, Paul had said that he had fought with beasts at Ephesus. And it seems that he is also referring to the problem with the silversmiths there. If that is the case, then Paul wrote 1 Corinthians within a short period of time between the event with the silversmiths and when he had left Ephesus. Yet, in the terse manner in which the book of Acts was written, it is also possible that there was more time between the trouble when Paul had left Ephesus between the trouble with the silversmiths and when Paul had left Ephesus than Luke's words actually indicate. However, there may also have been other events in Ephesus which were the cause for Paul's comment about fighting with beasts. In Acts chapter 19, it is recorded that Paul was teaching in the assembly halls. And in verse 9, it says that, When diverse were hardened and believed not, but spoke evil of that way before the multitude, he departed from them and separated the disciples, disputing daily in the school of one Tyrannus. So Paul was forced to leave the synagogue and go and teach in one of the pagan schools of philosophy. Following that is Luke's description of the episode with the vagabond Jews. Either of these events may also have precipitated Paul's comments about fighting with beasts at Ephesus. After that, from Luke's records, it seems that the message of the gospel had great success in Ephesus up until the time of the trouble with the silversmiths. In any event, where Paul says here that we were exceedingly oppressed beyond ability, consequently for us to despair even of living. It is evident that the troubles which he had in Ephesus <coughs> were much more dangerous than Luke's records in the book of Acts indicate. And this is actually a credit to Luke and to the book of Acts that such things were downplayed rather than being um, 
fantastically exaggerated tales. They were downplayed. The, the, throughout the book of Acts, the feats and, and the sufferings, the persecutions of the apostles were, were, were downplayed and the message of Christ, the message of the gospel was the focal point. And it pretty much stayed that way throughout the book of Acts, which is a credit. If you consider the, um, much of the fantastic literature of the time, not only the poetry, but also a lot of the um, historical narrative and the way it's written, the book of Acts is a very, very modest book. Verse 9. Yet we had within ourselves that sentence of death in order that we would not rely upon ourselves, but upon Yahweh who raises the dead, who from so great a death has protected us and will protect, in whom we trust, because also he still will protect. The 3rd century papyrus P46 <clears throat> has a plural form of the same phrase rendered as so great a death. And, and we would, if we were to follow that, we would simply write so many deaths. Who from so many deaths, in other words, so many times where they may have faced death. In Matthew chapter 10, Joshua Christ had spoken to his disciples in reference to his enemies. And he said, The disciple is not above his master, nor the servant above his Lord. It is enough for the disciple that he be as his master, and the servant as his Lord. If they, meaning the enemies of Christ, if they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more shall they call them of his household? Fear them not, therefore, for there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed and hid that shall not be known. What I tell you in darkness, you speak in light, and what you hear in the ear, that you preach upon the housetops. And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell, or perhaps in Gehenna. Christ was tortured and killed by his enemies. And since the disciple is not above his master, but could be as his master, the followers of Christ are subject to that same thing. True Christians can expect to be persecuted by the world, as the apostles were no better than Christ. This is another aspect of the affliction of the anointed to which Paul refers. The, despite, the disciples of Christ were told to proclaim the word of God from the housetops, and they were also told that they would suffer in the flesh for that proclamation. This is an inevitable result of the apostasy 
of the children of Israel, that those who love Yahweh would suffer from the majority who have no understanding. Psalm 34, verse 21. Evil shall slay the wicked, and they that hate the righteous shall be desolate. Yahweh redeems the soul of his servants, and none of them that trust in him shall be desolate. Paul understood this, and the sentence of death he spoke of was the knowledge that he would die for the truth of God as Yahshua Christ, his master, also died. Yet Paul was persuaded in faith that since it was his mission to preach the gospel, that he would ultimately be protected from harm for as long as his ministry endured. However, understanding that the Adamic soul is indeed immortal, the Christian should not fear any man. And for this reason, Paul had no fear of death. He had later professed in 2 Timothy chapter 1, written from Rome at a time later in his ministry when he was indeed facing death and even expected to die, he said, Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Yahshua before the world began, but is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior, Yahshua Christ, who has, Paul speaks of this as if it's an accomplished fact, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Whereunto I am appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher of the nations. Taking the understanding even further than this, Paul had understood that since he was appointed to preach the gospel, he had no choice but to preach the gospel, even in the face of death. Therefore, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul exclaimed, Woe is unto me if I not preach the gospel. As Christ said, Fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body. Now, we had illustrated when presenting Romans chapter 5 and 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that the Adamic man has an eternal spirit. However, that does not mean that Yahweh God has no power over that spirit. Eternal life, that eternal spirit, is a gift from God. All Adamic men have the promise of life. Yahweh's power over the life of the spirit does not by itself indicate that he will revoke that promise for any man but he certainly does have that power. And that is who men should fear. Verse 11, 
1 Corinthians, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. You also cooperating on our behalf in prayers, in order that from many persons the gift to us would be thanksgiving by many on our behalf. Some of the better manuscripts, the 3rd century P, Papyri P46 and the Codex Vaticanus have on your behalf, but that's actually contrary to the context. Paul expresses confidence that the Corinthians were praying for him while he was in Ephesus. It is evident in many places that Paul had exchanged many letters with the various Christian assemblies beyond the 14 epistles which we have. And yes, the epistle to the Hebrews does belong to Paul. We have already seen evidence of at least one lost epistle to the Corinthians, evidence of lost instructions to the Galatians, which Paul mentioned towards the end of 1 Corinthians, and of a lost epistle to the Laodiceans. That's three epistles right there that we have evidence existed. It is likely that Paul was frequently in contact, not only with the assembly in Corinth, but with many of the other assemblies during his three years in Ephesus. We're fortunate to have the 14 epistles that we have. It must be by the providence of God. It has to be. Paul had a ministry that, that went for at least 17, 18, 19 years, 20 years from the time he was converted, depending on the year. Could have been 34, 35, 36 AD. So that would be 24 years to 60 AD when he went to Rome. During that ministry, if we count it as 24 years, we only have about eight epistles and six epistles written over the two years that Luke says that he was in Rome. Paul must have been writing or preaching every night, one or the other, so we would expect that many more epistles were actually written. Concerning prayer, Joshua Christ had said, as it is recorded in Matthew chapter 18, Again I say unto you, that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. But first, and this is a point that most so-called Christians never get, first Christians must agree in Christ. As Christ himself had said in John chapter 18, that to this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Every one that is of the truth hears my voice. And not everyone is of the truth. 
Hearing his voice, true Christians should in turn become one voice in the world. As Paul said in his epistle to the Romans, For whatsoever things were written aforetime, were written for our learning, this is from chapter 15, that we through patience and comfort, that's exhortation, encouragement, that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. Now the God of patience and consolation, or encouragement, grant you to be likened one toward another, according to Yahshua Christ, that you may with one mind and mouth glorify God, even the Father of our Lord Yahshua Christ. Wherefore receive ye one another, as Christ also received us to the glory of God. Agreement with the scriptures should result in the like-mindedness of Christians. That's what Paul's saying in Romans chapter 15. All these things written aforetime were written for our learning that we may be with one mind. Agreement with the scriptures should result in the like-mindedness of Christians, of those who are of the truth, as Christ described his sheep. And in that manner, can they truly gather in his name. Agreeing with one another in prayer, they may have an expectation that their desires are fulfilled, so long as those desires also accord with the word of God. Even Christ said to certain requests of the apostles that you know not what you ask. Matthew chapter 20, Mark chapter 10. People simply praying for one another, however, is not enough by itself. (coughs) It's different when we all know each other and we agree in Christ. That's fine. We should always pray for one another. But people simply praying for one another is not enough by itself. Out in the world, people are constantly, we see signs on the highway about, thank you for your prayers, so-and-so is okay, or please pray for so-and-so because he's sick. Out in the world, people are constantly appealing for prayers or praying for others who they do not even know. It is vanity to pray for an unrepentant sinner. How could you pray for somebody that you don't know, that you can't attest to the character and the behavior of? You can't pray for him. That's vanity. Unless you know that you're praying that the sinner can be shown the path to repentance, it's vanity praying for a sinner, unless you're praying for his repentance. The Apostle James, in chapter 5 of his epistles, had advised Christians to, therefore acknowledge sins to one another, and pray for one another that you may be healed. The entreaty of the righteous 
If you're an unrepentant sinner, you can't be considered one of the righteous if you're acting wickedly. The entreaty of the righteous being employed prevails much. The ability to acknowledge sin reflects an attitude of repentance. However, even the sacrifices of wicked men are rejected. As it says in Proverbs chapter 15, The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to Yahweh, but the prayer of the upright is his delight. We're not perfect, but we can try. James had also warned in chapter 4, the same epistle, From where are battles, and from where are fights among you? Is it not from this, from your pleasures making war among your members? You desire, and you have not. You murder and strive, and are not able to succeed. You fight and battle. You do not have, for reason that you do not request, you request and do not receive, for reason that you request evil, in order that you may be consumed in your pleasures. Most prayers offered by those in the world are vanity, as James adds to that same passage. Adulterers, do you not know that the love of society is hatred for Yahweh? He, therefore, who would desire to be a friend of society, establishes himself as an enemy of Yahweh. Or do you suppose that vainly the scripture says, With envy yearns the spirit which dwells in us. But more greatly he gives favor, on which account it says, Yahweh opposes the arrogant, but he gives favor to the humble. The humble are those who are willing to submit themselves to God. Paul was confident, however, that the prayers of the Christians of Corinth were indeed effectual. Verse 12. Therefore, this is our reason to boast. The testimony of our conscience that in sanctity and sincerity of Yahweh, and not with fleshly wisdom, but with favor of Yahweh, we have had our dwelling in the society, and more extraordinarily in reference to you. Now rather than sanctity, the majority text and the King James Version have simplicity in simplicity and sincerity of Yahweh. Paul esteems the keeping of a Christian walk as a reason to boast, but he is not necessarily admitting having boasted. There's a huge difference there. I've seen Paul criticized for um for the statement according to misunderstanding and confusion over the words. According to Liddell and Scott, where the Christian New Testament has reason to boast in verse 12, where Paul is not necessarily saying that he boasted, only that he has a reason to. According to Liddell and Scott, the Greek word 
Caucasus, Strong's number, 2746, is a reason to boast. A related word, Caucama, is a boast. And that word does appear here in verse 14, where Paul speaks of the assembly, not of himself. The King James Version does not distinguish between these words. It has only rejoicing in both places. In the final clause here, Paul is complimenting the Corinthians for enriching the lives of the apostles with their fellowship. While he had spent at least 18 months in Corinth before he left there, probably in 52 AD, which is recorded in Acts chapter 18. His words here certainly indicate that there was an ongoing relationship after he had departed. Verse 13, For we do not write other things to you, but those which you have read or even know. The 3rd century papyrus P46 and the Codex Vaticanus want the words for the phrase, or even know. Paul must be referring to the scriptures. We do not write other things to you, but those which you have read. Paul must be referring to the Old Testament scriptures. And is telling the Corinthians that he has written nothing to them which is contrary to those scriptures. Nothing they haven't heard or read or know. Referring to those Old Testament writings which he so often cited throughout his epistles. In that lengthy epistle, 1 Corinthians, the few times Paul offered advice without scripture, he explicitly told them that there was no commandment and that the advice was of his own private opinion. And he told them that because the things that he was giving them counsel for, there were simply no examples suitable in the Old Testament scriptures in order to make citations. So he simply said, this is my opinion. And the end of verse 13 says, and I expect that even until the fulfillment you will know. And here Paul seems to express a confidence that the things which he has communicated to the Corinthians will stand the test of time as well as they stand the test of comparison to Scripture. Our reading of his epistles today are an attestation that Paul was right. Verse 14 Just as also you have known us to some degree, seeing that we are your boast, just as you also are ours in the day of Prince Joshua. There's a Greek word here, epigenosko, which is simply to know in verses 13 and 14, it usually implies a more precise meaning. It could be to look upon, to witness, to observe, even to recognize or know again. 
In various places in Paul's epistles, we've rendered it know, recognize, acknowledge, discover, observe. The word for read in verse 13 is another word, anagidnosko. It comes from the same root, meaning to know. Verse 15, And with this confidence, I had planned to come to you earlier, in order that you would have a second favor, and by you to pass through into Macedonia, and again from Macedonia to come to you, and by you to be escorted into Judea. By second favor, Paul means, and by this description, Paul means that he had initially wanted to visit Corinth twice, both before and after a sojourn to Macedonia. Apparently, before he left Ephesus, he planned first on visiting Corinth, and then sojourning to Macedonia and returning again to Corinth before going on to Judea, as he describes here. But Luke, and if we understand that Luke was separated from Paul, from the time that he and Silas had left Philippi all the way to the time that Paul gets to the Troad in 57 AD recorded in Luke chapter I'm sorry in Acts chapter 20 verses 4 through 6 knowing that Luke at this time was separated from Paul as the book of Acts attests Luke could only have recorded these events in Acts at a later time because he was not with Paul when they happened. So Luke, when he recorded these events in Acts, wrote only what Paul had also reflected in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, which was a plan to go to Macedonia first and then to Corinth. This part of Paul's travel plans are described in Acts 19 in verse 21. And that record agrees with what Paul had also said of these plans in 1 Corinthians 16. However, Paul seems to have been belaboring this visit to Corinth. And he must have changed his plans in stages, as we pointed out. 1 Corinthians 16 verse 7 also indicates to some degree where he says that I will not see you now by the way he must have at one time told them that he would see them by the way so 1 Corinthians 16 7 proves our interpretation of the timelines here and reinforces the notion that herein 2 Corinthians, Paul is outlining a plan he had for travel to Corinth and two visits which was earlier than the plan he gave in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. It may have been sent to the Corinthians in an earlier letter, earlier than 1 Corinthians. And we've seen in our presentation of 1 Corinthians in chapter 5, that there was indeed at least one earlier epistle. Paul seems to have belabored visiting Corinth 
and he seems to have changed his plans in stages, as we've established here. So we only get the full picture of his original plan here in his later epistle in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And then he must have changed his plans further, deciding to winter elsewhere other than Corinth and making a much shorter visit than he planned initially after he had written 1 Corinthians when he told them that he was going to winter in Corinth, to winter with them. He changed his plans again after that. And that's when he was writing this second epistle to the Corinthians. Where it says, and by you to be escorted into Judea, that word in the passive voice can can mean either to be escorted or to be sent forth, and the meaning can be determined by a preposition. Here, some manuscripts have the preposition which indicates that the reading should be um, from you to be sent forth. And the same manuscripts that have that preposition here also have it where the same phrase appears in Romans 15.24. So that's just a... Um, the, the note on this will be longer in, in the written version of these notes of, of this presentation. But it's just a challenge that translators face. Verse 17. Therefore, planning this, had I indeed been in want of, un- of easiness, or that which I plan, do I plan in accordance with flesh, in order that with me it would be yeah, yeah, then nay, nay. In other words, were Paul's plans made to waffle, that he would just vacillate or change his mind. Paul's saying that his initial plans to visit the Corinthians were sincere, even if he chose to change them due to the circumstances, which he explains in detail in the second chapter of this epistle. Therefore, he insists that his original purpose was to be honest and consistent. And he says, But trusting is Yahweh, seeing that our word to you is not yeah, then nay. In Matthew chapter 5, Yahshua Christ admonishes men not to swear, meaning not to make oaths. And then he says, but let your communication be yeah, yeah, nay, nay. In other words, let your yes mean yes, and your no mean no. For whatsoever is more than these comes of evil. Therefore, Christian men should not swear. They should not make oaths. But they should bind themselves to their own word. Later, the Apostle James writes clarifying these things in chapter 5 of his epistle but above all things my brethren swear not neither by heaven neither by the earth neither by any other oath but let your yeah be yeah and your no no lest you fall into condemnation so James illustrates and, and tells us more clearly what these statements mean
The Christian should be careful with his communications and seek to keep his word. If he means yes, say yes. If he means no, say no. For the Son of Yahweh, Yahshua Christ, who among you has been proclaimed by us, by me and Silvanus and Timothy, has not been yeah, then nay, rather with him it has been yes. For however so many of Yahweh's promises there are, with him is the yes, and through him the truth, or the Amen, with honor to Yahweh through us. The phrase, the Amen, to Amen, is rendered in the King James Version and others as the Amen, but here it is the truth. We prefer to translate the original Hebrew word. Strong's definition found in his Hebrew lexicon at entry number 543 is sure or faithfulness. So we could write, and through him is the certainty. And that would be even more exact a representation of the meaning. Strong's Concordance shows that in the King James Version of the Old Testament, number 543 and other closely related words were sometimes translated as truth, and we chose that rendering to represent the word Amen, where the adverb often appears in the Gospels as an explanation. We see in the King James Amen, amen, I say to you. We prefer to render it as truly, 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 I say to you. It should be the purpose of man to honor and praise God. As the word of God says in Malachi, in chapter 3, For I am Yahweh, I change not. And as Paul attests in Hebrews chapter 13, Jesus Christ, the same, yesterday, and today, and forever. Only God knows what comes, and therefore only God can keep his promises with certainty, while the plans of men often fail. And that's what Paul's referring to here. He meant, he was convicted that he would visit them according to that original plan. But he's only a man. He's not God. Only God can keep his promises all the time. In this same regard, the Apostle James, once again, says in chapter 4 of his epistle, Come on, those now saying, Today or tomorrow we shall go into this here city, and we shall spend a year there, and trade and make a profit. Those who do not know what condition your life is in tomorrow, for you are as vapor appearing for a short time, and then disappearing. Instead of which you are to say, if the prince or lord desires and we shall live 
then we shall do this or that. And what James is telling us is that we can't make plans at all and keep them unless it's God's will. So when we plan something, we pray that it is God's will. And then, so be it, and we may do it. The name Sylvanus appears here in verse 19. Sylvanus is only known from this mention here and two others which are seen in each of the two epistles to the Thessalonians, both of which were written sometime before this epistle while Paul was actually in Corinth. So Sylvanus was well known to the Corinthians, and he must have also been known to the Ephesians, since he is probably also the same man mentioned by Peter in his first epistle, which was addressed to the assemblies of Asia, Ephesus being the chief city of Asia and the chief Christian assembly residing there. In the book of Acts, it is apparent that Sylvanus is indeed the same man as Silas, which is a shortened form of the same name, and he is mentioned frequently as a companion of Paul's in chapters 15 through 18. Sylvanus was with Paul from Antioch. It is interesting that Paul calls him in his epistles, and Peter also in 1 Peter, by the full form of his name. While Luke, who was also from Antioch, calls him by the familiar shortened form of his name. Perhaps that indicates that Luke was a friend of Silas or Silvanus from an early time, while Paul only knew him later and more formally as Silvanus by his full name. Sylvanus is not mentioned any later in time in the scripture than this occasion here, except in Peter's epistle to the assemblies of Asia, where in 1 Peter chapter 3 he mentions that he had also written to Sylvanus. This helps to lend credibility to an argument we have made in the past in our um, Bible commentaries that Peter had written his two epistles to those assemblies in Asia after Paul's arrest when Paul was absent from them. We would contend that Peter wrote those epistles for the edification of the assemblies which Paul had earlier founded in order to confirm to them many of the things which Paul had taught. Now he who is establishing us with you in the anointed and anoints us is Yahweh. The Apostle John says to his students, Yet you have an anointing from the Holy One. The King James Version has unction. In chapter 2 of his first epistle, this helps to corroborate our assertion that Paul is often referring not to Christ alone, but to those Christians who are the body of Christ when he uses the word Christos, or anointed. Paul is saying, and anoints us. 
who is also confirming us. So this verifies that the word us refers to both Paul and the Corinthian Christians, not only to the apostles, who is also confirming us and is providing the deposits of the Spirit in our hearts. The Greek word for confirming is literally sealing, to set a seal upon. Metaphorically, it's confirming. The Holy Spirit of the apostolic era, the Spirit bestowed on men, was seen by Paul as a deposit for the greater things to come at the fulfillment of the age. He wrote in his epistle to the Ephesians in chapter 1, speaking of Christ, from verse 11, in whom we also have obtained an inheritance, being preordained according to the purpose of he who accomplishes all things in accordance with the design of his will, for which we are to be in praise of his honor, who before had expectation in the Christ, in whom you also, having heard the word of truth, the good message of your deliverance, in which also, having believed, you have been sealed, the same word that we see here, with the Holy Spirit of the promise, which is a deposit of our inheritance in regard to redemption of the possession the children of Israel, in praise of his honor. Verse 23, Now I appeal to Yahweh as a witness upon my soul, that sparing you, I had not yet come to Corinth. Paul had initially planned on visiting Corinth even before going to Macedonia, which would have been shortly after Pentecost in 56 A.D., Then he found it necessary to change that plan, to go to Macedonia first, and then winter in Corinth. He wrote that in 1 Corinthians. Later, he found it necessary to adjust his plans further, and put off going to Corinth until after winter. Sparing you, I had not yet come to Corinth. Paul's explaining why. He hadn't been there yet and changed his plans twice. So here he was writing them during the winter, which he spends about 200 miles away in Nicopolis, north and west of the Isthmus, which leads to Corinth. Just out of reach of the Corinthians during winter, it would be difficult for them to make that trip, round trip, at that time of year. Not because we lord over your faith. Rather, we are colleagues of your joy, for you are established in the faith. Paul, the apostle of Christ to the nations, would not lord over the faith of those who he was reconciling to Christ. However, he did seek to admonish them to follow the scriptures. Letting Christ become their lord. In that manner, they would be established in the faith and become his colleagues. Paul's attitude in this regard is an outright refutation of popery. Why 
he felt he had to spare the assembly of Corinth and not lord over their faith is explained in chapter 2 by Paul himself and we will leave that at this point until next week Yahweh willing tomorrow night the devil in Luther's dream part 4 Sunday Christiania Europe 2 p.m. Sunday afternoon the European right what are the chances a discussion of the political situation with right wing parties in Europe the populist and nationalist parties of course we have no political solution we only pray that our people awaken to some semblance of racial consciousness if not God consciousness yet they will have that and they awaken to the fact that the real devil the international Jew is their enemy and not their God thank you for listening praise Yahweh and good night